Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, welcome back. We are here with another episode. We are going through sections 67 through 70 today. These are good sections. I've actually been anxiously awaiting to get to 67. This has been something that I've been looking forward to since we did section one, in fact. So right. I'm excited about that. There's just some good discussion all over the place with Beatitude stuff, of course, and with uh, with Revelation and how the Revelations come about and the Restoration. And anyway, we'll get into that. Section 68 deals with the revelations to Orson Hyde, Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, and William McClellan. And this is another one of those revelations that's really trying to to set a new identity. It was really trying to set a new regulation and get everyone to know what they're doing. So you have these revelations going to each specific individual and helping them see what the Lord wants them to see. This is obviously a brand new way of experiencing religion where you actually have actual revelation. And so you're no longer simply trying to find truth in the Bible, but you're relying on immediate revelation for you directly. And as we've talked about before, sometimes the Lord is like, you know, you guys, you can come talk to me directly. But yet this is still so nuanced and still so new that they're they're going to Joseph for for every needful thing, as it were. And and in 68, we get a little bit about bishops and about how bishops are called and why they're called and the relation there between the sons of Aaron. In verses 25 through 27, we'll talk about the call for us to train our children in righteousness and also this really interesting little observation about idlers, <laughs> idlers in the, in the city of Zion and how we, we shouldn't have these idlers. Section 69 has a revelation given to Oliver Cowdery as he is called to go west, but not alone. And he's supposed to take the, some manuscripts with him and to, and to take some monies with him, but he's not supposed to go alone. And then section 70 has some fascinating little tidbits here talking about stewardships. And, and, and we have this discussion here with verses six and seven that I'm, I'm sure we'll get into about the grammar. Probably the punctuation here, it seems a little bit confusing. I don't know if we are, we actually came up with a good solution here, but uh, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll see what we can find when we get there. And then we're going to end with this topic of the commonality of all physical substance. Ooh, that's going to be that's going to be a fun discussion, you know, from our old political days and the political philosophy days, and in uh, in in right wing conservative America where. You should get everything that you can possibly get for yourself and no socialism, no equalized anything, but yet <laughs> it's going to be a little bit, uh, it's going to be a little bit different when we get here. We, we've had a lot of information and a lot of doctrinal talks over the pulpit since then, but yeah, when we really go back to see what they were trying to, 
really go for at the in the early days of the church. It's uh, it's a little bit more commun- communitarian even than than we really mm-hmm. want to to uh, acknowledge, and and that definitely evolved into a far more radically individualistic philosophy, religious philosophy. But we'll get there when we talk about it. But going back to section sixty seven, where this all begins, this is. This is a fascinating section for me because of one of the things that I've been doing with with the sections this year in going through Come Follow Me is I've been looking for God that pokes through the cracks. The, The God of the Sermon on the Mount, if I'm being more specific, the God of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that cruciform hermeneutic that we've talked about before, basically using Gethsemane and Christ's suffering and sacrifice as the key to interpreting scripture. You know, this was not my idea and uh, yours either. When uh, I originally found it out through reading a book by a a man named Gregory Boyd, um, evangelical minister, but he has a book called Cross Vision that I thoroughly enjoyed. And he, his whole book is about how to make sense of the violence in the Old Testament with a New Testament reading. And so he comes up with this word. I think he's the one who coined it even. If not, he very much advanced it. But this idea of the cruciform hermeneutic and about how to interpret the scriptures through the atonement. And so we've been talking a lot about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and we're pulling that out, and we're going to do it again here today. But just to see how much of this was was Joseph's language and about how Joseph talked about these revelations and about how much of Joseph's ness, as it was, came into these words and came into these phrases, and then to see how much God is still there. And so I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion. But as we were talking before, I kind of jumped right into that discussion, but you brought up verse three, Ben, that you thought was, that was great here. It says, ye endeavored to believe that which ye should receive. Well, I guess let's back up. Let's contextualize this a little bit. So as they're compiling the book of commandments for the first time, what will eventually be the doctrine and covenants? As they're compiling the book of commandments, there are some ways that Joseph speaks, especially in concerning section one. There's some ways that Joseph speaks that some of the people are a little embarrassed about. Joseph's not a really good orator in this way, and, and a lot of his own personal colloquialism, a lot of his personal way of talking, it, it's, it's, it's not really polished. And this is very much in the spirit of the Second Great Awakening. You know, in, in the Second Great Awakening from about 1790 to 1830, 1840, is this time of a public revolution and evolution where religion was about making people feel God as opposed to having really high church, high sounding, very philosophically sound sermons. Religion became something that you could be an illiterate and still be a preacher if your sermons could stir the crowd. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, Joseph was a very charismatic person. Uh, a lot of church historians talk about him in this charismatic way. This goes back to the sociologist Max Weber about his the, the, the charismatic one that begins and starts religions. 
And so Joseph can can really get a crowd going. He can really instill these these spirits and this emotion of of his story into those who listen to him. But yet at the same time, even as he can stand there in front of a room, usually with a stone and a hat, and, and this is how he really did a lot of his revelations, even after translation, is he would stand there with a, a stone and a hat and, and bury his face in there. And then finally, he sometimes would just stand there and dictate revelation and people would write it down afterwards. It was still going through Joseph's filter. And a lot of these started to still sound like Joseph and the way Joseph talked. And so anyway, that's how we get down here to uh, verse 3 when he says, Ye endeavored to believe that you should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts, and verily this is the reason that you did not receive. And this is speaking, of course, to the fact that many of the elders wanted to, they were already receiving revelations. And that they had wanted perhaps to clean up these revelations, make them sound a little bit better, a little bit more polished. And so the Lord is coming out there and talking to about how their inability there of doing so was about the fear of their heart. But Ben, you had a little bit of different way of looking at this. What was that? I was more interested, at least for this verse, I was more interested in the word receive in this particular verse, because I've talked before about the use of the word receive. You know, this is an active thing. Sometimes we use receive as a passive thing because, right, giving is active and receiving is passive. But in a gospel context, it's often used as an active thing. Most notably, in my opinion, is the words we say when we we confirm, we say receive the Holy Ghost. It's like an imperative, right? So there's like something we actually have to to actively do to to have the Holy Ghost, right? In this verse, it talks about how we they weren't able to receive because of the the fear in their heart. So I just I just think it's an interesting way to describe this experience as one where it was there and ready for them to have it, but that it was it was their choice or, or their their perception that prevented them from receiving as, as sort of an active action. And so um, I, I just think that's a really interesting way of putting it. Overall here, you know, section 67, section one, this is where it fits in chronologically, <laughs> is, is right here in the Doctrine and Covenants. You know, we talked about it so long ago, but this is section one is received here at the, at the time of this section as well. And so then there's this whole discussion about how they're going to put together all these, these, these revelations that have been written down. And uh, when we get over into these verses here, starting in verse, verse five, your eyes have been upon my servant, Joseph Smith Jr. And his language you have known and his imperfections you have known. And you have sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. Now seek out of the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. Or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that they are true. But if ye cannot make one like unto it, ye are under condemnation, if ye do not bear record that they are true. Okay, I, I have often looked at these verses as the people that were here with Joseph Smith, the elders of the church that, that had... Um, at this time, were responsible for for moving the work forward, right? They'd convened in this conference. I had 
at one point before seen this as they're challenging Joseph Smith's experience, um, not just his authority, but that this was almost a challenge to Joseph Smith saying, oh, he didn't really receive revelation. But actually, that's not what's happening here. The They do all believe that Joseph Smith receives revelation. They don't like how he expresses that revelation. And so they have, they have all received a manifestation from the Holy Ghost, maybe at the same time. And they, fe- they feel to express these things differently than Joseph Smith has in words. And so the, the point here of these verses is to tell them, okay, so can you express this revelation, which the revelation itself is actually, you know, the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. But then Joseph Smith takes that and he puts it into the best words that he knows. And then so what is offered to them is, okay, take whatever manifestation of the Holy Ghost and put it into words. And the person that tries to do this is William McClellan. And he he simply can't express it in a way that is true to the the manifestation of the Spirit. And so this word true here, where it says you do not know that they are true, you bear record that they are true. The true isn't talking about whether the revelations are really from God. It's talking about whether the whether the written down word is true to the actual revelation of the spirit that they received. The disagreement, so to speak, was in how that revelation was written down. If the correct words were used to express the concept, if the grammar really, really expressed what it was that was at the heart of this revelation, right? And and all people do all day long is argue about, you know, what the scriptures really mean. And so <laughs> these people, you know, they have a vested interest in trying to make sure the language is right. Does this really express what the Holy Ghost is is saying to us? But I don't see it necessarily as a challenge of whether Joseph Smith did or didn't receive the revelation, but rather their belief that they could express it in better words. And I, I think I think a lot of people will have had this experience. You know, you maybe you're sitting in a group and you're you're having a gospel discussion. There's not a disagreement necessarily about the the truth of some particular concept, but people all express it in a different way. And maybe somebody will give give their expression of it, you know, put it into words, and you'll say, "Oh, yeah, that that's it. You know, that's how I feel about this. That you you said it in a good way." And so that's kind of what Joseph Smith has become here, quote unquote, the mouthpiece, because he's the one that is able to actually put into words what this revelation is that they're experiencing. Then they they arrive at a consensus about whether Joseph Smith's expression is the one that is truest to the actual revelation. And so you have a majority of them testifying that they do feel it's true. William McClellan and some that are with him don't really feel, uh, they think that it's it's not eloquent enough. It doesn't really express what they're really experiencing by the Spirit, which, you know, I, I get that, right? You know, I've, <laughs> I've read explanations of things before, even in the scriptures, what we would call scripture that's like, uh, that doesn't quite fit my experience, right? You know, I would say it differently. I actually like how this prophet puts it. And um, so William McClellan kind of wanted, he thought he could do it better. And when he went to express it, 
the people and even William McClellan kind of finally conceded, yeah, you know, this doesn't, I'm not able to really express it as well as Joseph Smith. So anyway, that's what I take away from these verses. And it's different than how I, I had read them before. And and to me, it makes a whole lot more sense. And it really, it really sheds light on how Joseph Smith received an expressed revelation. It was much more mysterious, so to speak, to me before. And it just makes a whole lot more sense to me now. Yeah, I like that a lot. And and I like it because it gives a lot of grace and mercy, compassion, and room for these men to be doing what they're doing. And it still allows God to be working with them. It takes away some of the absoluteness of 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 what these scriptures are, and it really puts it into a place where, in a sphere, where we have room and we create space to sit with God in these and to let God really talk to us about how we need to be, about how these scriptures need to read to us at the what time. In this time. Right. Right. Yeah. In the time sphere that we're reading them. Because it's, it's one of those things that we, we tend as egocentric beings. <laughs> and I know I'm, I'm very guilty of this, of sitting down with scripture and saying, this is what it absolutely means. No, this was the intended absolute meaning of it. God speaks English as his first language. As his, <laughs> no. Right, right. You know, everything's literally written God's by God's first language God is not English. English. It's, it's something else. <laughs> and we, the very act of writing down the revelation is a translation, right? So. Right. A translation. And a good word I like, an interpretation. Yeah, it's also an interpretation. A translation is always an interpretation. Right. And so when we look at how we come down and read scripture, a lot of the times we have to give ourselves and the text an incredible amount of grace because we have to recognize our own egocentrism in reading the text that it becomes a method of interpretation. And a lot of the times in our pride, we want to say, this is the absolute interpretation. <laughs> Yeah. But we also have to also recognize that we are informed by our culture, by our language, and even by the spirit in how it is bringing those that text into our own lives. And I know when I've had this discussion before, a lot of people want to cry relativism with this and say, you know, you can't, this makes, this makes the scriptures relative. And in a way, kind of, yes, and in a, in a larger way, no. More subjective than relative. Yeah, I think that's a better way of looking at it, is that the scriptures can only ever be subjective. This goes back to the whole conversation that we've talked about before, about there being no such thing as objective history, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is like History 101. In every graduate course I've ever been in with history, it's it's been said at least once. <laughs> By the professor, by someone else, and in a wide variety of classes, um, by LDS authors and by non-LDS authors and historians, they all say there's no such thing as objective history. And again, in the same vein, there's really no so there's no objective interpretation of scripture. Even the spirit bearing witness and witness to us is what we need in the very moment. Now, I know this is a, opening a big can of worms because I know there's a lot of arguments that can be had against this. It's like, well, if, if the scriptures are all subjective, it can be whatever it wants to be for anybody. And that's where we have to go back to the Beatitudes and realize that the whole process is about emptying the ego, 
about emptying that cell, that part of ourselves that makes the subjectivity egoistic based. The subjectivity comes in in that God is going to reveal to us what we need to know at that time and place. I mean, how many of us have read scripture when we've read a scripture and we've received a revelation that may have nothing to do with the scripture we've read, but yet we have an, an answer to prayer and we go and we act upon it? Or one one scripture reads one way to us and we act upon it and it has good fruit and we read the same scripture years later and it means something completely different to us now and then we act upon it and it produces good fruit? In this way, we're not coming to the scripture with the point to prove it for our own egoistic basis. We're coming to the scripture in a moment of humility and grace and repentance in wanting to learn to see God differently and trusting that God in the sermon, as the Sermon of the Mount says, knows our needs before we even ask of it, ask of God. And so by coming to God and, and pouring over that, he's able to reveal those things in the time and the sphere and the place that is going to affect us. So that's the kind of subjectivity. That, and I like that word that you brought up there, subjectivity, and not relativism. Because relativism takes this position that truth is whatever you want truth to be and whatever you want it to be from wherever you're at. And for the disciple of Christ, that's not the point. It's that, yes, there's a subjective lay, layer there, but it's the subjectivity in truly seeking to let go of our ego and to repent that really turns and acknowledges that subjectivity and turns that to grace for our benefit. So tying that in with everything that you've, you've said there, Ben, I think there's a lot of grace then and a lot of space that we're able to create for revelation and for those who receive revelation. And sometimes when revelation is given, in one context and then immediately walked back in a different kind of context. You know, another, uh, an example of that is a recent example even is when the church came out with a ban on children of gay parents and said they couldn't mm -hmm. be baptized. And we heard this was a revelation. This was directly from God. This was, you know, the, the several president Nelson, when he was the head of the, the quorum of the 12, he said, this was a very much a revelation. And then just only, what, two or three years later, the church did an about-face and they, they completely changed. And they received a completely different revelation that walked back and, and amended what they had done before, right? And there is a lot of room here for criticism, and there's been a lot of, a lot of room here and a lot of hurt that came from, from this. But there's also grace that we can extend in these moments. Grace in being able to allow the leaders can have subjectivity in how they're coming to the spirit and in how that grace transforms what the revelations say and how that's administered. And then for us, even as we come to scripture. So anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead of, of where we were at. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the reason I think that, that subjectivity is a, a better way to describe than relativity is because we're we're not saying that the truth is different or changes. I mean, you know, that's kind of the the point of relativity is that, well, you know, the truth um, isn't independent of the person, and and so you know the truth really changes from person to person, and and subjectivity rather says, well, it's about perspective, not about the difference of truth. And whereas truth may be something that somebody's trying to arrive at, because every person is an individual and unique, 
how they need to arrive at that is going to be different, even if it's in small, minute ways for every single person, which is why it requires God himself to lead them. And that's where it has to be subjective. Because our indiv- as individuals, we have to have that guide from God, from the Holy Ghost. And really, that, that's the thing that we talk about with the gospel. Everything with the gospel is all geared towards receiving the Holy Ghost, that presence of God that then guides us. Nephi talks about it. You know, that's like the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and often we, we then try to prescribe so many things that happen objectively after a person receives the Holy Ghost and forget that those are descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay. Anything a person does after they receive that the Holy Ghost, the presence of God is describing how God is manifesting himself in that person's life, how the love of God is manifesting itself in their life. So it's very difficult for us to take that and say, okay, look how that person's lived their life. That's how you should do it too. And it's like, that's how the Holy Ghost is guiding them and manifesting itself in that person. That doesn't 100% mean that that exact manifestation of how God is guiding that person is going to apply to every other person. That's what we mean about subjectivity. Yeah, that's a really great point. That reminds me of our discussion when we talked about the burning of the bosom that Oliver had and about feeling the spirit yeah, yeah, and having those experiences with the spirit. That, that was you, Oliver. Right. <laughs> I, I, I've known dozens of people who have had that burning of the bosom experience that they've described it the same way. And th- they shared that experience with Oliver. But for me personally, I've never had that experience, although I have experienced God. Because I experience God in a different way, in a, in, a, in a subjective way to me. So yeah, great uh, great distinction there. You know, going on to verse 10, you know, this is where we started to see some uh, beatitude language here. And again, verily I say unto you that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained into this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourself before me, for you are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither with the natural mind, but with the spiritual. So I, I, there's so many reasons to love this, but right there, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves, that's that poverty of spirit that we're always talking about. The stripping away of the natural man, of the false self, those, those things that come, those identities that bring jealousies, those associations that bring fear, those things that keep us from being humble. And then as we progress through that, be those beatitudes, the veil is rent and it is the pure in heart that shall see God and know that he is. In verse 11, for no man has seen God at any time in the flesh except quickened by the Spirit of God. Neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither after the carnal mind. And this this goes back again to the poverty of spirit. That poverty of spirit is stripping away the false self and the, the, the carnal mind, letting us, re- letting, 
what is beneath and has always already been there, that that true self that was made in the image of God and that God pronounced good to be to be brought out and recognized. You are not able, not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministry of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until you are perfected. Let not your minds turn back. And, and this is where I love that, those, you let your minds turn back. Because this really starts to speak to the, the mourning that comes directly after the poverty of spirit. Because it's in the mourning that we often want to turn back to the old habits, to things that we've left behind, identities that we've secured, things that we used to find meaning and joy in. You know, you think of scriptural analogies like Lot's wife who turned around for whatever reason to Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that turning back, you know, the scriptures talk about like a dog to its vomit. That's always a very graphic way of doing it. Describe <laughs> that. <laughs> I kind of feel that in my stomach every time I say that. It, but it's that turning back to the old way, even though, and, and this is what I love so much about God is that even when we turn back, my, my own experience is that even when I have turned back and have reverted back, there is no disappointment in God. There is no ridiculing or punishing or anything. God is there with me even then. And his lo- and the love and the grace is there. And it's in that love and the grace that's there, even when we fall back to false identities that we've abandoned, that God is still there with us, never abandoning us, never letting us alone. And the confidence... The confidence I've had to build up in that God after I've been taught so long in my life a different kind of God and how I've had to learn how to experience a God full of mercy and compassion and grace. And once I was willing to commit to that and allow that to be and allow myself to recognize the truth of that, it's like everything else around me changed. And it was at that point when the guilt and the shame left. And once that left, it was, what came in was the love of God. And then everything that was after that was motivated by the love of God, by the mercy and the grace of God. In recognizing, like Enos said, he's like, I, I don't even know how this is possible, but all I did was let go. And I let God do what God was going to do. And I recognized that and it changed everything. So in these, I I love how he talks about letting go of those fears, just letting go, stripping yourselves away, letting go of the jealousy, letting go of the fear, just allowing ourselves to be humble, and then seeing how that process evolves like dominoes, and then God is able to reveal himself as God truly is. Yeah, you know, verse 13 really stood out to me in particular, that word abide. So you know, looking that up, it, it, it means to remain with or, or keep or stay with for you know more than more than a, a little period of time, a little bit more of an extended period of time. And so I thought this was an interesting way to put it and actually, you know, fits my experience well in this context. You are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels, wherefore continue in patience until you are perfected. I don't know about anybody else, but my experiences with God are these moments. And it's almost like I'm looking down and focused on everything that's going on down here in the dirt. 
And every once in a while, I allow myself to look up and I can see, you know, and I, and I get those glimpses. Or maybe, maybe I don't even look up. <laughs> maybe I see it out of the corner of my eye <laughs> because I can't get my head up, right? <laughs> but I, you know, but I, I don't keep my head up, right? I don't keep it there, abide there. I, I let it go back down, you know, just like verse 14, let not your minds turn back. This is the anti-repentance, right? Repentance is to turn to God, and then turning back would be turning away, looking back down. And I think there's a lot of things that that might cause us to do that, or or might might influence around that. But you know, verse fourteen is interesting because then it says, "And when ye are worthy in mine own due time, ye shall see and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith." In other words, he's referring back to thirteen, this ability to have that experience or or abiding experience or more lengthy experience with the presence of God. And I think that so much of what keeps our head down is our belief or our, our operating perception that we are not worthy. We're not worthy to look up and see that. Our gaze belongs down in the dirt. And that uh, you, you were talking about that as well. You know, so much of that is, is tied to that ego and that fear that's talked about earlier in this section back in verse three that, that keeps us down, looking down in the world and taking our eyes off of the things of God where, where they could be. It's easy to talk about, right? <laughs> you know, I've used this analogy before. It's, it's, it, it might be harder. Goodness. I don't even know if harder is the right word for it, but it definitely seems like it's harder, like water in your hands, you know, to, to hold that in. It just seems to, to seep out so much. Um, the Lord is telling us here that it doesn't have to be that way. And, um, uh, you know, we're just working on believing him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in section six, moving on to section 68, you know, this was given in uh, to, to Orson Hyde and Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, as I said, and William McClellan. And uh, there's a lot of the things we've talked about before about the stewardship and about going out and being on mission, you know, the missionary work and, and what they were to prepare for. And then there's this section here about bishops and about priesthood administration. And it's a great section, but one that just, for me personally, you know, they talk about the gifts of the spirit and about the the gifts of administration. And for whatever gifts I may or may not have, I don't think this is one of them. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have a to gift for administration. the significance of this. Yes, to discern the significance of this, because whenever I come across a scripture of of administration, I'm like, huh, that's nice for someone else. <laughs> 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 but you know, I I absolutely love you know I I've often said to be in any kind of leadership position is my own personal hellscape. I just that's not where I have any any desire to ever be ever. And I don't know if that comes from owning businesses before and realizing I just I just don't like that administrative role. I, I don't like taking that, whether or not in business or in church. And so to go through and to read about the administration of the institution and the structure and, and those things, 
I don't know. That just, that's one of my things that for me personally, it just doesn't land. And so I, I read through those sections. I'm like, huh, maybe Ben has something to say there. I don't. I, I don't. But- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately. I am. I, I struggle with the significance of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's not new. This isn't new quote unquote doctrine to me. I just, I don't really have anything to comment, any like, um, any commentary to make on it. Like I don't, um, insight, I guess you could say it, it, I don't really understand the spiritual significance of it. And I would love somebody to explain to me what, what they think is the spiritual significance of it. I would, I would listen, but I, I, I didn't get anything out of, out of it as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it from the administrative point of view and from setting a regulation and, you know, the building of the church and the infrastructure and God's structure. I, I get all that portion of it. But from, uh, but just kind of through the, the th- themes that we generally talk about, it doesn't really fit. For me, I'd be happy to is have somebody else bring in, like you yeah. said, bring in possibly where it fits in better than, better than I can. So let us know. But. Moving on to verse 25, I do love here these next two sections that talk about training children, and and then it gives this whole uh, section here about idlers that I think will be fun to, to talk about. Verse 25, it says, and again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God and baptism in the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years of old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. For this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, or any of her stakes which are organized, and their children shall be baptized for the remission of sins when eight years old, and receive the laying on of hands. So, it's interesting what is identified here. The things that are identified to teach to the children of all the things that could possibly be taught. Right? Why focus on these? And it really comes down to the fourth article of faith, right? You know, faith in Jesus Christ, baptism, repentance, and and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here we, I, I love that repentance is here, and this this really is one of the things that my wife and I really find important in our own home is this emphasis on learning to see God differently. And learning to see how God responds to us and speaks to us, and really not trying to put limits on that. Learning how to have faith and confidence with it. You know, there's a, there's a very real fear of being deceived that is in most religious cultures and traditions. And one of the ways that we solve that is by trying to gain knowledge. And by knowing the scriptures and by knowing the, knowing the absolutes. But unfortunately, not even the scriptures are always entirely consistent. And so sometimes that's not even the best appeal. You know, I, I think regularly about uh, my wife. We moved around a lot for the first 15 years of our marriage. And well, I guess for the first 13 years of our marriage. Anyway, we moved around a lot for, the, <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> You know, some like twenty. Well, the house you're living in now is where you've lived for the long. You've lived there longer than anywhere else, right? I think so. Yeah, we've lived here uh, almost four years. So that's been that's been a really long time for us. Definitely longer than anywhere else. But otherwise, in our in our marriage, uh, see, yeah, we've been married sixteen years, and so I think twenty four times, twenty four times, twenty five times mm-hmm. we've moved. 
But as we've moved around quite a bit, we've been able to see a lot of different cultures and about how different people are responding and having different relationships with God and about how God is revealing himself to different people and in their lives. This message of repentance has become a very central feature in our home in learning to kind of take God out of a box from, from what, what we want to try to make him in a box through, through whatever experience we have or whatever answer we have. Cause a lot of times we go to, we go to the scriptures to try to find these, these absolute stories, but sometimes just sitting with God and seeing what becomes manifest is the most powerful way of knowing who and what God is. Right. And so in this, teaching children in Zion that doctrine of repentance, for at least for our family, has been more than just the, the rote, you know, the, the four, is it the four or five R? I, I can never remember how many R's there are <laughs> in that old Mormon I, I tradition never, of. That never held water for me, so I don't know. It never held water. Yeah, and me either. I just, it never held water for me either. Um, for me, repentance has always been, and I was always taught, what it says there in the Bible dictionary, in the earliest Bible dictionary, of just learning to see God differently and recognizing that once we see where we're at and we make that change of heart and that's there, then that's it. That's the repentance. And then after that, everything is just icing on the cake. Yeah, that, that repentance, that's been, that's, that was a powerful one. So as I was going through there, that stood out to me, that doctrine of repentance and about what that means. Yeah. So, I mean, here the, the whole thing is, hey, you know, children, they really need to understand this, this path to gaining the companionship of the Holy Ghost or recognizing the companionship of the Holy Ghost. If I'm honest with what I, what I really think is going on here. And this is, this is the way that we arrive in a, you know, in an organized institutional sense this is the prescribed way of arriving at that companionship of the Holy Ghost or or presence experience with God. And that's where you where you want to get. And so teach your children how they can do that. And well, how can you teach them if you don't know yourself? Right? How can you tell them that the experience with God is worth having if you don't know that it's worth having? You know, that there has to be truth in your words. When you tell them, you can have an experience with God and it's worth it. It's worth what it takes to have that experience. And you know, this part, this last little part of that verse there, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. So it doesn't say the sins be upon the heads of the parents. It's not like, you know, if somebody doesn't get baptized, everything they ever do in their life for the sins is their parents' fault, <laughs> right? <laughs> sin, remember, sin is just that missing the mark, right? So the fact that the parents didn't you know teach the children how they can gain that experience you know that that is going to that's going to be an issue for them in terms of you know maybe later in life they will look back on that and 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 maybe have some regrets doesn't mean that obviously none of that is is able to be remediated but um you know the the imperative for parents is to to help their children understand that they can as children of God have an experience with God and uh, and implicit in that is that the parents have had that experience so they can speak truthfully about 
you know, that, that it's an important thing to have. Yeah. So I, I want to go back and look at verse four just a little bit here because verse four um, is kind of a commentary on what we were talking about in the previous section um, about how Joseph Smith receives revelation because it, it basically says what what uh, was the point there. And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord and the power of God into salvation. So... <clears throat> So much um, in this context, we've talked about Joseph Smith being the one who is the revelator, right? He's the one that receives this and, and writes down the revelation. But really what's going on is, is Joseph Smith is the one who institutionally and formally has been able to express this, this new religious identity and experience in words um, that are, are codified, written down, and used to create this institution and unify the people. But it does not mean that's the only way revelation comes. And it doesn't even mean that that's the only way that the word of the Lord comes. The word of the Lord comes as people speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's even equated here with the authority of the scripture, which is quite a thing. That's quite a thing. Yeah. That that verse is difficult to get away from. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, that, 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 that speaks to me, you know, we talked in previous podcasts about how there's this dynamic of, of you, you have, you want all these individuals having these subjective, as we just talked about spiritual experiences, right? Where the, where they're going and they're having their own individual spirit experiences, but you want to somehow unify them into this, this singular identity so that you can have a common experience as well. And so, you know, this verse seems to be talking a little bit more on the chaos side of it, you know, <laughs> all these people having these manifestations of the spirit and speaking and and whatever they say is scripture. And like, I can see from an institutional perspective, Joseph Smith almost, almost being like, ah, <laughs> how do we handle that? <laughs> um, right. You know, because that's a little, you know, that's a little bewildering there to, to think that, um, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like um, a testimony meeting, right? <laughs> Open mic. You don't know what people are going to say, <laughs> but uh, it's brave. You know, I still think that's very brave of the church to have an open mic. <laughs> yeah. Op open mic Sunday, the first of the month is, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, it really is when you, when you think about it, it's, uh, it's quite the daring feat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's all I want to say about verse four. So moving on to verse 30. We have, I guess, verse 29, and the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the inhabitants of Zion also shall remember their labors, inasmuch as they are appointed to labor in all faithfulness, for the idler shall be had in remembrance before the Lord. And now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children are also growing up in wickedness, and they also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. All right. So that's, this is, this is rather interesting. So mm. in, in the Mormon culture tradition, we have a very, a very subtle at times and a very explicit at times philosophy of meritocracy, where we believe in really eating the fruit of our own labor. You know, that, that we are, we are to build and to produce and we are to, to actively build up for ourselves our own stores. And then from that, actively give to those who don't have. And we're, and we're going to have a little bit here and that anyone who is capable and able 
should be working, right? And in a lot of ways, this has, this sounds really good on the surface. And while I don't condone laziness or idolatry or idlers, there has also been kind of a, a double-edged sword with the meritocracy that has entered into the church culture because it has very much bred this understanding of a quid pro quo God, mm-hmm. of God only helps those who help themselves. Yeah. And my goodness, I certainly hope not. Because my experience with God is that God has been there to help me when I was not helping myself. And in fact, the things that were the most transformative with me, the thing that really truly brought me the love of God was when grace and love and compassion and mercy were extended to, to me when I did not, I was not actively pursuing it, when I was an idler, as it, as it were, both maybe physically and spiritually, that God is a proactive God, that you know, there's this, there's this phrase of like, where would you be with if it wasn't for the church? And I have to kind of shrug my shoulders because for the longest time in my life, I was like, well, I would be a drunken, I would be a drunkard. <laughs> I'd be doing every drug possible. I would be out having pr- promiscuous relationships with every possible person that I could come into contact with. I, I, you know, and then it's like my mind goes crazy with like everything that would possibly have ever, I could ever do wrong is like, if the church wasn't in my life, then I would just be a, a perpetuator of wickedness and evilness, right? <laughs> and that's kind of where the mind goes. And as I've talked with so many people, that's, that's exactly where their mind goes too. And it, I find it hilarious that one of the very first things that we talk about, if the church wasn't in our lives, it's like alcohol. <laughs> Alcohol. I would go right to alcohol. But the fact is, is that I've, I don't even like the smell of it. I've never even once been tempted by it. And it's never been anything in my life. And, and so I drink as much alcohol every day as I want to drink. And the amount that I drink is zero because I don't want to drink it. It's like, it is literally the easiest commandment in the, in the LDS church that I obey because like smoking, I, I don't want to smoke. I've never wanted to smoke. Just not my thing. Right. But there are these things about idlers about how they are not working for their own progression. And this has really led to a lot of other aspects and a lot of wings of our faith and our belief tradition that are not always Christ centered. Right. And I'll just kind of put it, leave it like that. I can see what this scripture is saying, and I love what it says here in verse 31, because I think that really contextualizes what these few verses are really getting at when it says that speaking to the children growing up in wickedness, they also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. And that's really where I see this happening. Because if they were talking about like this, physical slothfulness, laziness, then then they wouldn't be talking about this greediness. But that the slothfulness they're talking about is that about this, the riches of eternity. And those riches of eternity are really only seen through that beatitude path. Because we have to let go of the earthly identities and really turn into seeing the true self and what the true self has for an eternal identity. 
And so we can't see that eternal identity and the richness of that eternal identity. And also, I think there's also a problem that I've noticed, and, and it's not even just in the LDS church culture, but it's in, in so many other cultures that place so much evidence or so much weight on the eternities. When, as I've read through the New Testament, I can't find any real evidence of Christ putting any emphasis on an eternal reward, on anything that happens after this life. There's like one or two one-offs, like when he's there on the cross with the, with the, the person next to him, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's a couple of those, but there's no real major discourses about the eternities. Everything that he's doing is bringing the kingdom of God and the peace of his kingdom to the here and now. As if the here and now were eternity. Yeah. Right. Eternity isn't, you're not really like waiting for eternity to begin, you know, like we're already in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's a great point. It's like past, present, and future all come down to the present here and now. And so Christ is coming and he's saying, listen, blessed are you here and now. Not blessed have you been or blessed shall you be, but blessed are. It brings it into the moment. How do we bring peace into the life, into this life? How do we build the kingdom of God in this life? And the kingdom of God is within us. How do we allow that to come forward? So to see the riches of eternity, are I think we commonly try to put this into, well, I'm putting in like celestial quarter dollars into my, my chest, right? <laughs> and I'm like, this literally makes no sense because all of a sudden we posit that God has some kind of celestial economy where we take our little coins and we spend them. And once we spend them, then what? Then what? Does our chest just automatically repopulate? Or does it just run run dry? Are we going to go build businesses up there? Like, And then we get away from ourselves with the discussion because that's kind of a stupid discussion to have. But when we look at the riches of eternity, and I like how you said that, we are already in eternity. The riches of eternity are for the here and now. We are experiencing it in the here and now. We are, we can bring that Christ centered way of being into our present now. And so we begin to see that the false self, through its greediness of accumulating the things of this world, does not truly see the things of eternity and how eternity per, presents itself in the here and now. You know, you were talking about this what might be termed work ethic as opposed to idleness, right? And and I think this is largely a function of the setting of the the institution of the church. This is a not uniquely but distinctly American ideal is this work ethic, this like this this it's kind of a puritan thing right that right you you know you it's a moral thing to to work really hard and 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 it, and accomplish things by by your work and it's not that that's not true you know it's just that that is a distinctly puritan and then evolved into an american thing and then so obviously like this new formation of this church 
uh, is is very American flavored, right? <laughs> Indeed, um, steeped heavily in Americana, and so um, it's going to have picked all of that that sort of thing up. So, so when you get verses like this, they're going to be interpreted in the lens of you know that that American uh, flavor. But um, we can step back from them and say, well, you know what? That doesn't have to mean that. We don't have to apply our, our culture to it that way. And, and actually, as you continue in the verses, you realize that, that what's going on here is this formation of a new identity that doesn't have to be interpreted in, a, in an American context, even though it so often gets interpreted that way because all, you know, the majority of the people, at least at this time, that are, are forming this have already been very heavily steeped in that American identity. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great distinction there with, with that American identity and meritocracy. And there is so much of Americana that, that did seep into the early church and, and is still permeates today. Um, layers of Americana that still, we can say, infect or I think in fact, it's kind of a, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it is in some sense, arguably even more that, that over time rather than um, becoming distinct there, there actually has been. And, and there is a concerted effort, you know, by the institution of the church to try to, to, to peel that away, but it's, it's extremely difficult to do so um, if for no other reason than, than that uh, even just financially, the the core of the church is still you know in the United States, and and so that it's very difficult to get away from the that that type of influence. You know, I I, I anticipate one day that 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 will start taking more root as more concerted effort is applied to that. But and it's it's the roots are deep. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Indeed, they are very deep. So moving on into section 69, I don't know if you had anything more to say about 68. Uh, no. No, I don't. Okay. Um, 69 was given to Oliver Cowdery about him traveling to Missouri and taking with him monies and the, and scripts and having John Whitmer go with him to, to help them, to help him out. And I didn't really have anything to say about 69. Did you have anything more to say that, about there either? Um, you know, I actually highlighted some parts in the section heading, which were just about John Whitmer. I, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, John Whitmer is is kind of a unique and interesting character. You know, he was called, set apart, uh, ordained, whatever, to this office of the like church historian and recorder. And man, if anybody has ever in the history of the church magnified their calling, this guy did. He wrote everything down, <laughs> like. So much, like too much. <laughs> um, so, so much stuff. Like it, it's so difficult to read because it's, it's so meticulous that it's like really boring sometimes <laughs> how much he, he wrote down about what happened. Um, but it's all also was really beneficial. Like he really, um, really took to heart his responsibility and his stewardship and did it. And so when he went on this, um, this journey with Oliver Cowdery, you know, it, it, this is a, a very short and specific revelation that, you know, I think you're right to have not necessarily pulled in some some profound spiritual principle out of it or anything. But uh, like, I, I just like what it says about the character of John Whitmer. It's it's an interesting historical uh, point. And, and then obviously 
verse one is wise. You know, when you're carrying money and and, and these really important things, don't go alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very pragmatic. Well, moving on to seventy, there are a couple things here that we were that stood out to me. You know, this is talking a lot about the context of the the book of commandments that will eventually be the doctrine and covenants and about how they are coming forward and the, and the role that people play very much is a theme throughout all of these sections. And there is a, a place here between verses six and seven that <laughs> you and I were talking about beforehand or like, what does, what does this even mean? We didn't know what this means. Yeah. Grammatically, it's hard to, to, uh, sort out, um, because, the the them and these things it's hard to know exactly what they're they're giving reference to so i think maybe there could be some some punctual uh, revision of this punctuation revision of this to to clarify it because as i was reading through verses starting with verse 3 4 5 6 um he references the stewardship here in verse 3, over revelations and commandments. And then he's constantly referring back to revelations and commandments using the pronoun them. And then he gets to verse 7, and it says, inasmuch as they receive more than is needful for their necessities. And he had been talking about the stewardship of the revelations and commandments. So it's kind of odd to say, well, what do you mean receive more? Or like receive more revelations and commandments? Because then he said in the verse before, don't give these things unto the church or the world. And so I'm I'm a little confused by the structure here. It could be that we actually are ending the discussion of the stewardship of revelations and commandments at the end of verse 5. There is a period there. And that verse 6 actually starts talking about finances. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I get a little lost here in it. Um, so, yeah, that, yeah, the section heading shows it as six through thirteen, but yet I don't know how to resolve six and seven. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't necessarily need to. I just was was trying to get a continuity as I was reading through it, and I I couldn't I couldn't make it work, and so I'm I'm fine with just letting it go. Maybe somebody else can. <laughs> <laughs> can make sense of it. Uh, All right. So for anybody, goes. so for everyone listening, if you figure it out, go ahead and post it and let us know what you yeah. think and how you resolved it. And, uh, and, and we'll incorporate it and talk about it next time. But I think it's fascinating here in verse 14, where it says, nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal and this not grudgingly. So, so from, uh, from my old philosophy days in, uh, in, in radically free market idealism, the the temporal equality of all things was was never really the the idea that we upheld as a Zion type society, right? It, it was always well, everyone can is free to be able to do whatever they want to do, right? But no, this is nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal and this not grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the spirit shall be withheld. So if any verse in the scriptures deserves to be marked red, this verse deserves <laughs> to be marked red, right? <laughs> Communist red. <laughs> that's, that's right. Thank you, comrade. So 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting what they were going for. You know, there's this story about once they were in Nauvoo that a socialist came into town and started to talk about it, it was it was a different type of socialism than even what came in from later. So we're talking about mm-hmm. this is 1844, Yeah, it wasn't like state like wide range state socialism. This is like you know very limited type of communitarian socialism. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and so this was a different type of way of doing the, the community. Now, the church's way of doing it was not about ownership. It was about stewardship. And it was about how each individual would put in all of their own properties into the bishop's storehouse. And then they would be given basically a stewardship title back to those things. And then anything that they built or beyond anything that was excess was then donated to the church so that you could have everything that you needed, but then all excess would go to the church. And then the church would distribute it to all of those who were in need that it deemed were in need of, of the help. So this is a very interesting way of looking at it. This was not a personal property rights issue. And, you know, that was definitely a way that it was tried to be defined in the last, uh, last 50 to 60 years. But this original, this original way of doing it was very much church centered and church allocated and church doled. But then it was, and managed that way. And so this whole, there was a type of communitarianism that followed from Alexander Campbell that Sidney Rigdon had followed there in Kirtland that had ended in kind of disaster. And so when Joseph had spoken against socialism, in the history of the church, what actually talks about this story, it says that he got up and he invoked the story of the failures of Kirtland during the days of Sidney Rigdon and, the, and, the, and that whole group with the Alexander Campbell communitarianism and about the failures of that escapade as a way to be able to talk against the socialism that this gentleman was bringing to Nauvoo. And so it just goes to show that there was a different type of socialism that they were talking about back in the day and that the church because it then had not just taken in the community so that everything was everybody's that they reallocated it back as a stewardship what was what made this different mm-hmm. so so you donated everything in and then you got it back as a stewardship and then whatever you got above and beyond what were your immediate needs and what your needs are your what your needs and desires and wants then at that point you donate all that into the church so Really interesting way of doing it. Um, I wonder how many louder stands would go for that today. Well, it didn't. It didn't get practiced for much of an extended period of time in in any of the <laughs> early days of the church until they got out to Utah. And then once in Utah, actually, there were quite a few little communities that that um, you know tried to implement this type of system. Most notably, I think, would be Orderville. There's actually a, a city named Orderville in Utah. And it was the one that I, I think it was the one that held on to it for the longest. These little um, commune type uh, cities and, and establishments where they they lived what they called the United Order, right? And uh, tried to to do it in this way. And so it did get practiced, you know, a little bit later, but at least at this time, never was really uh, functionally put in place as far as today goes yeah i can't i can't i can't see like culturally american that ever happening but i i do know that at least from like a like a true 
in terms of intentionality uh, perspective, there are places uh, in the world where membership of the church does largely live this way. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't put it past certain areas in the world, but uh, I think that culturally this would be uh, unwelcome in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be a very interesting, uh, <laughs> it'd be a very interesting experiment if that came about. They had several false starts and, uh, and interesting attempts at living this way prior to Nauvoo. But once they mm-hmm. got to Nauvoo, they kind of put it on the back burner and they yeah. said, well, we're not going to really do that right now. So they didn't do that in Nauvoo. They didn't live that way in Nauvoo. And then, as you said, yeah, they, once we get into talking about the United Order, which which will necessarily yeah. we'll talk about the the United Firm, that'll be a really fun discussion. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we'll get it. We'll get into all that fun uh, that fun history because <laughs> it, it's changed, man. It's changed, and that'll be an interesting discussion about how Revelation is given and about how about how things um, come from over the pulpit. So we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, you have a you had a a sort of an oral history of these concepts that perpetuated for a long time in the church. And so all of our ideas about them kind of build up around that oral history. And then when we finally got in the written history, which just wasn't really, I don't know who it was available to, wasn't largely available. We've looked back at the written history and we're like, wow, our oral history didn't match this at all. <laughs> this is not, not the same thing at all. Yeah, so last thing I think that stood out to me here in this section was the use of the word manifestation or manifestations in these verses 13, 14, 15. I really like the way that this verse describes the experience with the spirit and the blessings of of God. So, yea, even more abundantly, which abundance is multiplied unto them through the manifestations of the spirit. Nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. Now, this commandment I give unto you, unto my servants for their benefit while they remain for a manifestation of my blessings upon their heads. So, um, all of these are manifestations. It's not saying like just the actual blessings don't come or the actual presence of the spirit doesn't come, but rather the manifestation, which I think there is, you know, in terms of the way that we have been having this discussion about an experience with God, this is actually an important distinction um, because manifestation, the, the word means to like disclose something that's unseen, but not something that doesn't, wasn't there before, but just something that we don't see. You know, in these previous, these previous sections, we talked about they talked about not seeing it with their spiritual eyes, not seeing God, because we don't see him with our with our natural eyes. We have to see him with our spiritual eyes. And so this yeah. manifestation being the thing that we see with our spiritual eyes. And so here, for a manifestation of my blessings upon their heads, God is always blessing his children. And that is just so often a matter of whether we're willing to see it you know, pick up our heads and actually see where those blessings are coming from. And I like that word in this context. I think it really does a good way of describing the experience. Yeah, I like that. Well, Ben, do you have anything else that you want to add to section 70 or to what we've uh, talked about before we end? I don't. Well, thank you everybody for sticking with us and for, and for listening. 
we've had quite a few moments, I think, this episode where we're like, I don't tell us what you guys think because because <laughs> we don't have an idea. It's uh, it, it's good just to sit here with the scriptures and to see what comes from it and to see what becomes present. And I value these opportunities to be able to sit here and and I hope you do as well. It allows me to moments to think throughout the week as as you know you and I record Ben and as as we have these conversations. It really does bring a new way of seeing the scriptures out for me than than when I read them myself personally. And, uh, and I value that experience. And I'm glad those who listen, several feedback from, uh, who listen regularly that, that, uh, they've had some, some great experiences as well. And, and I'm very grateful to hear from those experiences. But until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening.